In the summer before my senior year of high school, I read my first Jane Austen novel, Emma. I didn't like it at the time. I thought it unnecessarily difficult, repetitive, and stuffy. I was reminded often of the internet-famous one-star Amazon review of Pride and Prejudice, which described the book as, quote, just a bunch of people going to each other's houses. And that reviewer wasn't wrong. Austin's books are thick with procedure and etiquette. They are really just a bunch of people going to each other's houses. I read Emma again this past winter, wanting to give it another chance. And I loved it. For the next ten and change minutes, I'd like to tell you why. Princetonian. I'm Gabriel Bear. You're listening to Bookish, a prospect podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about Emma by Jane Austen. Past me didn't like Emma because I wasn't ready for it. Emma was published in 1815 and was the last book Austen published before she died. Naturally, Emma is Austen at the height of her powers, taking full advantage of complex characters and drawn out subplots. In a letter to her nephew, James Edward Austin, soon after Emma came out, Austin described her writing as, quote, a little bit two inches wide of ivory on which I work with so fine a brush as produces little effect after much labor. Austin's writing is at its most intricate in Emma. All Jane Austen novels follow a similar plot. Essentially, this is what happens in all the novels. First, a heroine is introduced. She is demure and likable. She lives an isolated life among the wealthy elite in a small, rural English town. Then, a strapping young man arrives in town, disrupting the quiet society. The heroine is inevitably attracted to this new beau. But then, a scandal rocks the town, marking the new man as entirely ineligible. And the heroine realizes that another man, whom she's been close to all along, is the perfect husband for her. The book then always ends with their marriage. Emma does fit this general format of Austen's novels, but it complicates it at every turn. The plot, for one, is not as simple as this general format. As for Emma's attractive but ineligible suitor, there are two of them instead of the usual one. First, a cocky Emma tries to play matchmaker to unite one Mr. Elton with her friend Harriet. Things go awry, and Mr. Elton eventually proposes to Emma, but she refuses. Later, a Mr. Frank Churchill arrives, and Emma falls for him quickly. But it is revealed that Frank had proposed to a different woman long before, and was only leading Emma astray with his seeming interest. It isn't until rather late in the novel following two other love interests, that Emma realizes that she wants to marry Mr. Knightley, a longtime friend of the family. But the book still ends, as it always does with Jane Austen, with the marriage of Emma and Mr. Knightley. Unlike Jane Austen's other novels, much of the action is offloaded onto characters other than the heroine. 
Emma is often only a witness, while long sections of the first volume are devoted to Emma's matchmaking for Harriet. A healthy chunk of the second volume focuses on the mystery of Frank Churchill's strange behavior, and minor characters get full scenes to themselves away from Emma, including the nervous Mr. Woodhouse, the silly Mr. Weston, and the stupid Mrs. Elton. And Emma is much more difficult to love than Austin's other heroines. Austin went as far as to say that Emma Woodhouse was, quote, a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. And from the beginning of the novel, it seems as though Austin's right. The first words of the book are, quote, Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence, and had lived for nearly 21 years in the world with nothing to distress or vex her. And having never been distressed or vexed by the time she turned 21, that made Emma grow up to be quite an annoying person. Throughout the book, she is consistently certain that she is right. When she is not trying to meddle in other people's business, she is lost in her own imagination. Emma believes she is better than everyone else in the novel, and acts that way. The thing is, though, Emma is better than everyone else. She's handsome, clever, and rich, and she's always polite. She's a doting caretaker of a hypochondriac father, and she's a genuinely kind person. Emma is the most complicated character Austin ever wrote. She's difficult to understand, especially on a first reading. Before I read Emma the second time, I read Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, and Persuasion. I came back with a better understanding of the Austin template. The magic of Austin's novels is knowing what's going to happen and being surprised and excited by it anyway. You move through the set pieces, the stock characters, and the courtships, and you know what's going to happen at the end. And still, even though you know what's coming, you eat it up. Emma subverts and complicates the template. Knowing Austin's usual format, seeing the extra twists and turns feels like being let in on a secret. Emma's more complex storyline only adds to the excitement readers feel as they reach the end of the story, and as Austin draws together all of her complicated narrative threads. Emma was also better the second time around because of COVID-19, believe it or not. That online reviewer was right in saying that Austin's books are no more than just a bunch of people going to each other's houses. By my count, there are no fewer than 17 major parties or gatherings in Emma, and people just go to each other's houses on dozens of other occasions in the book, too. These parties and balls and get-togethers might seem a repetitive and antiquated literary structure. But I, for one, had a great time going to all these parties with Emma in 1815, when we couldn't, here in 2021. The COVID-19 pandemic has uprooted life for everyone. But at its root, it's a fundamentally boring thing. Since March 2020, life has been without engagement. We spend many hours staring at our walls, or our phones, or the backs of our eyelids. 
Interesting online events and happenings are few and far between. There's little here to interest us. One of Emma's most prominent qualities is her active mind. It leads her astray sometimes, imagining strange situations far beyond what's logically possible and inventing excuses for her inadvisable actions. But her active mind also affords her deep cleverness, and she's rarely caught off guard by a new development. It also bolsters her politeness as she understands the ramifications of every statement she makes. Emma's active mind allows her to never be bored for the entire novel. As Austin writes in the second volume, quote, a mind lively and at ease can do with seeing nothing and can see nothing that does not answer. I think we could all do with seeing nothing and seeing nothing that does not answer. The first time I read Emma, back in the halcyon days of 2019, I thought it was boring and near impossible to trudge through. I thought, why go to these parties? None of this means anything. Living through 2020 and 2021 hasn't made me wiser, but it has made me realize that nothing means something. There is meaning in the little in-between moments of life and in the stupid parties. When the little nothings are taken away, it becomes clear they had meaning. Never the same meaning, but every in-person class, every meeting, every interaction, every conversation in the checkout line, every walk down the street meant something to us. Austin makes that statement about Emma's lively mind, that it can do with seeing nothing and can see nothing that does not answer, while Emma is walking down a village street, doing nothing other than looking around. If reading Emma again has taught me anything, it's to walk down the street and look around and do nothing. Something will answer. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Gabriel Bear, and was produced on the 145th Managing Board of the Daily Princetonian. It was edited by Cami Lee, with additional editing and production help from Isabel Rodriguez. The transition music you're hearing now and throughout the podcast was performed by Michael McClure. For the Daily Princetonian, this has been Bookish. Have a great day, and keep reading.